Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know, because I care about people who care about cats and dogs. The human-animal bond is what this show is all about, finding authors and experts to talk about cats, dogs, and the many other creatures who share our world. This is listener-supported WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station in Southampton, serving Eastern Long Island and Southern Connecticut over the air at 88.3 and at 96.9 in Western Suffolk. This is where I originated this show and have never missed a week for 14 years. At RadioPetLady.com, there's a podcast library with more than 750 episodes along with my other Pet Talk podcast shows. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media, Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. This show is made possible with the support of Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado, where he created a variety of litters as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also brought to you by Waruva, the Foreman family-owned pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes and cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. My guests today are Dr. Julianne Brower in Germany, talking about her book, What Dogs Know. Jennifer Brooks will be here from New York City Second Chance Rescue, describing how they do international adoptions from Egypt, Bali, India, Mexico, China, and the Bahamas. And Dr. Ruth Ann Lobos will be talking about supplements, especially for senior dogs. I am so delighted to meet Julianne Brower. She is the co-author of Another Doctor of Dog Cognition, Julianne Kaminsky, and together they've written a book called What Dogs Know. I learned about it from Mark Beckoff and his wonderful Psychology Today pieces about all the smart people around the world studying animals of every kind, but for us, dogs in particular. Julianne Brower heads dog studies that's one word, dog studies, at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History in Jena. And she and Dr. Julianne Kaminsky both studied biology and then completed their doctorates at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig and have done many, many studies. And this book is about all the very many studies that have been done from the beginning of time, practically, about dogs. Julianne, it's wonderful to meet you. And I tip my hat to you for the, the more than 20 years you spent studying dogs and what they do and why they do it and loving them and having dogs of your own. Are you feeling as if there's still so much more to learn or have you put everything you knew into this book? Oh, yes, there's a lot to learn. So sometimes I'm really surprised. I mean, we have been living with dogs for 30,000 years and and we work together with them, uh, but there are fields where we know basically nothing or, or much less than you would expect. Especially when I started to work with smell and cognition, so I wanted to know what does a dog think when he or she smells something. Uh, I was really surprised uh, how 
well, that we do not know much at all. Also, we use the nose of the dog. Uh, we do not know much. I mean, we, we know something about how to train that uh, ability to, I mean, like like for men trailers or, or looking for explosives and, right. and all these things that dogs do. But, but we do not know much about even the anatomy is not so clear. So there are still arguments whether um, dogs can uh, pant and smell at the same time. Um, oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, so so there are many open questions, but but um, the the topic that um, interests me most is what does the dog think when he smells yes. something? For instance, when he follows a track, we don't know, or we didn't know anything before I started uh, these studies. Uh, so yes, and and especially yes, sense of smell is something where I think um, there are many many open questions, but but even other topics you would sometimes be surprised um, how, yeah, that we do not know much. Uh, for example, also communication between dogs, even between dogs and humans. Um, I mean, we have all these dog books where you see these pictures and, and then um, you read what what does it mean when a dog does this and what does it mean when the dog does that and I don't want to say that this has to be wrong, but there are not many scientific studies that really investigate this, uh, especially a dog-dog communication. I think is not very well in, investigated still, although, uh, you know, dog, dogs are used uh, in, in so many fields. And, and so we're told if the tail wags or it's high or it's low or it wags quickly or it wags slowly. But these these anecdotes really that have been told by dog trainers trying to help people in some way not uh, not be not be upset with their dog or understand their dog better or not have a dog fight it isn't like your book what dogs know because i think what you've been trying to do is very different than what a dog owner or a dog trainer might want to do you want to if i'm saying this correctly you want to know what the dog's experience of the world is and you have to ask it you have to ask these questions in a way that is dog-centric, not human-centric. Do you think that that's a good way of putting it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I so, think that's that's really the difference. And I mean, people ask us, why do you uh, write a dog book? I mean, there are millions of dog books. Uh, but but I think the special thing about our dog, um, our dog book is really that um, we present those studies, those scientific studies, and there have been a lot of studies in the last 20 years. They, I mean, we really made progress there. Um, and yes, I describe or we describe how those studies are done, how these questions are answered. And also how the questions are asked, Julianne. That's one of the things I most am interested about in reading your book, is how the questions are framed. Because at the at the end of the introduction, you say, you know, people want to know how smart is a dog? Is it as smart as a three-year-old child? Is it as smart as a five-year-old child? But you don't want to talk about intelligence. You want to talk about cognition because what does that even mean? Why is a three-year-old child, why is a human being used as the yardstick of intelligence? This, this, this human-centric way of wanting to compare all creatures on earth, even, gee, are ants smarter than us because they can organize their hive better? or their farm better, or whatever you call the hill they live in, we, we kind of miss the point. And I guess because we live so close with dogs, 
we want to do that with dogs. And it seems disrespectful to me, whereas what your work is and the work you look at in the book, it seems to respect the dog as a species with certain abilities that we don't understand. We need to get smarter, if you will, to understand who they are and why they do what they do. Do you think that's part of of the work that you've done is to see them on their own terms, not on our terms? Yes, exactly. And um, that's that's a bit interesting because it's really a discussion in my subject. I mean, my subject is called comparative psychology. So what we do is we compare uh, human cognition with animal cognition, if you will. And uh, of course, most of the tests are somehow connected with our intelligence and and only now we start to think also in another way so but it's it's also very difficult to create such a test so if i create a test about visual um, communication for instance that's that's quite easy because i am i know we as humans are very good in that but if i want to make a tech uh, test like like how how uh, animals communicate with with odors. <laughs> it's already very very uh, difficult. And and actually, when we did this um, test, um, how dogs follow a track, um, do they know what they smell? That was our question. Um, it was so difficult to imagine. Ah, what could he have uh, perceived now as she went through those rooms? So we. We had uh, different rooms and then the dogs had to find their toys or their owners. Uh, but it was really difficult just to create that uh, test. And, and uh, yeah, I think that's a big uh, challenge now in, in the field of competitive psychology and animal cognition. Also to think of, uh, yeah, to, to, to come from the animal side, you know, to not to take this anthropocentric uh, view, which is normal. I mean, of course, we, we are humans. And I like this idea very much. There was an essay a long time ago, uh, I think by Thomas Nagel, uh, how is it to be a bat? So um, he imagined um, how a bat would uh, write a book about intelligence and, and probably the bat uh, would um, write something like um, this echo or thing, uh, you know what they are doing? I don't know the English uh, expression. Um, so, so what they are able to do, that's, that's very, very important um, for intelligence. And, and the bat would write, I don't know how all these creatures can live without that. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be yes. a bat-centric view. Um, because it it has this very special skill, and and of course we have those uh, special skills and how we cooperate and how we communicate and how we understand causal relationships. But but there are many other animals that have uh, very different skills, and of course also are very good in in their environment they are adapted for exactly for their survival and and even to thrive and even to have joy. For all we know, yes. you know, maybe a hummingbird is having a really wonderful time when they come to the hummingbird feeder. It's so much more sweet than one little flower. Maybe they're, yes. you know, thrilled. And maybe, a do- I mean, dogs rolling in, in, in odors, right? What is that? Rolling in dead things and scat. We don't know what that is. I mean, that's the one no, of the no. silly questions that humans ask. And I'm sure it's one you have asked, and other, and other anthropologists have asked, right? 
Yes, yes. I, I wouldn't say that any of these questions are silly. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really. Um, I I also sometimes compare it with the way I'm fascinated by that is uh, to learn another language. You know, just to, yes. to yeah put yourself in a, another position and just imagine how is it? How is it to be a dog to enter a room and then to perceive all these orders? How to decide? which one is important and which one isn't important. Um, what do you think? I mean, if you follow this track of your owner, then do you know, ah, this is my owner and he's in a bad mood? Or or do they just think, ah, something good is here? <laughs> so we right. don't know. And, and, and are there tests... Of the, of the many that you describe in the book, are there tests that have helped us understand that or are you now trying to design such tests? Um, what do you think and uh, what are you referring to in particular now? The odors, what they think, what, what their experience of an odor is. Well, we just started with this topic, but we did two tests um, really with a question, what do dogs think when they follow a track and the, the idea was the following. Yeah, for instance, two toys. And both toys are really liked by the dog. So they are really important to the dog. And now, so, so you have a, um, a ball, let's say, and then we call it Kong, you know, a, right. a, another a rubber toy. And, uh, and the dog really likes both of them. And now you roll the, bo the ball uh, through some rooms. So we did this really here where I'm sitting at the moment in our dog lab. And then, in the end, you exchange them. So oh. for the dog, it is um, uh, why they are following the track. It's, it's like um, ball, ball, ball. And then in the end, uh, suddenly there's a Kong. So, and what I um, supposed or what I thought that the dog uh, is able to do is really thinking, aha, ball, ball, ball. I expect a ball in the end of this track. Um, but then there's suddenly a Kong. The Kong is equally uh, liked by the dog. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's it's not what he would expect because uh, he followed the, the track of, of the ball. And and that's what he did. So we exchanged it and, and then we compared it to the situation where we didn't exchange it, where, where everything was normal. And so the idea was to distinguish between the situation that the dog thinks, aha, uh -huh, there's a ball in the end of this track, or uh, the dog thinks um, there is something good. So it's it's just you know it's it's more good basic. but different. It's, it's just like it's it's a good thing in the end of the track, and then they wouldn't care whether it's a ball or the kong because they like both. But now, as we saw that they were distinguishing the two situations, so they 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 would be. Uh, somehow surprised i mean it's not that they kind of stop and look surprised but but what they are doing um is that they then search for the ball so oh, they, they find the kong and then they search for the ball because that's not the thing that that made this track oh uh, that's where, interesting where this... so it's not just to get to a goal but it's to actually find the thing that made the track which is what makes a great tracking yeah. dog or a man trailing dog as you called it isn't that yeah. interesting? Bef while we still have plenty of time, I want to ask about the Max Planck Institute. Who is Max Planck? Why is there a Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, where you both got your doctorates, and a Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History in Jena, where you had the dog studies? 
Who's Max Planck? Um, I'm sorry to be ignorant, uh, but Planck. I could have looked it up, but I want you to explain it. Yeah. Oh, I, I should be very careful. He was a scientist, actually, I think a, a physicist or something like that, or a chemist. Uh, but um, Max Planck Institutes, there are about, I think, 85 or something in Germany. Oh, and these my are, goodness. Um, um, institutes that do basic research, very well-funded basic research. Wow. And um, so, uh, and I think the most important thing is, so there are several in Germany. It's, it's always funny to us when we uh, I see it in, in sometimes in the in the media, even in Germany, Max Planck Institute. She's working at the Max Planck Institute. It could be uh, and one of 85. 85 different ones. Um, there are ones about, I mean, um, geochemistry or, I mean, everything you could think of. But what we do is really basic research. And um, so we, we raise very basic questions. And um, it's it's very interdisciplinary. So so in the, here in this institute, which actually now changes uh, his uh, its direction, um, science of human history would be that that there there was a um, department of uh, where where people study cultural differences and language differences and archaeology yeah, department and genetics department. So so we all. Um, well, approach the big questions about the, the um, human evolution from different sides. Wow! And actually, the the one in Leipzig for evolutionary anthropology is is, is a bit similar. And now now they they were cha- it's it's very complicated. But the the basic thing that that is important, I think, that, that these are very well-funded um, governmental institutes in in Germany. How extraordinary! And I think what we're also saying is that these institutes are evolving as we as your knowledge increases and as it overlaps with the knowledge of other brilliant people even they can evolve the the names of the institutes and the intention and the way that that the thinkers the people who spend their time thinking which is an amazing thing that a government pays people to think for the rest yes. of us i have to say isn't that extraordinary um We've run out of time. I could ask you a million questions, but I am very impressed to know that the German government funds 85 places where smart people get to think and not have to worry about tenure at a university and get funding from, you know, a chemical company. That's the American way. It's not a great way. It's what we do, but I'm really impressed. It's wonderful. Julianne Brower, you have done something really terrific with this book. What Dogs Know, you and your co-author, Julianne Kaminsky, in England. And I, I look forward to more of your studies and more of your wisdom about dogs and us. Thank you for your long life of dedication to our favorite animals. Excuse me to the cat people. Sort of almost nearly the most favorite. Thank you so much, Dr. Brower. <laughs> okay. Thank you. This show is brought to you in part by Merrick Pet Care, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago, where they are still making natural pet food. They also provide nutrition to pet shelters in Chicago and Texas and to the service dogs for veterans from Canines for Warriors. This show is also supported by Cradle, calming products to reduce stress for dogs using broad-spectrum CBD from U.S.-grown hemp formulated with a proprietary blend of nutraceutical ingredients. 
I am so happy that I could get Jennifer Brooks back for a second conversation. She's the founder and runs New York City Second Chance Rescue. And they've done amazing work in the New York City area. And they do bring in dogs from the South, as far as I understand. But when Jennifer mentioned the international adoptions, I said, hey, come back. Let's talk about that. So, Jennifer, welcome back. It's wonderful to have you here again. Thank you so much, Tracy. It's such a pleasure to be on your show again um, and talking about this topic that I love so much. You do. You love dogs so much. You love putting them in new homes. You love taking them out of bad situations and putting them in good ones. Internationally, there seems to be all kinds of things that have gone on in America in terms Mm -hmm. of where we bring dogs in from. And then I would like to discuss with you philosophically why do we bring them in, which is a second order of business. The first time that I heard about dogs being brought in from far away was Mm -hmm. in San Francisco. Rocket Dog Rescue was bringing street dogs in from Taiwan. And I must say, I thought, wow, that's a heck of a distance to go. And how does that work for everybody, you know, in terms of health, in terms of welfare, in terms of is it really a great idea to take dogs off the street and put them in homes? And isn't that really hard on the dogs as well as the people? Now, of course, there's other places that dogs now come in from. That was that was Northern California. And obviously, there's a lot of water between there and Taiwan. Tell me what you've what you the ways in which you in New York City have gotten involved with international adoptions, the places and the ways and the whys. Absolutely. Sure. Um, So, you know, the Facebook has uh, been such a game changer for the rescue community. Um, It, you know, allows us to connect with passionate people just like ourselves from around the world. Right. And that is really the place where I met some great people, some great ladies and guys who um, just have a passion to help these animals and, and these you know, some of those, some of the countries are third world countries. Yep. Um, and we connected and they said, Hey, you know, will you help out? And, you know, we have everything covered. Um, basically they, they fundraise to get the funds for the ticket and for the crate and, um, for everything. And all we, you know, I just have to go to JFK, go to the airport and pick up that baby. And, um, it gives us time to find that animal a home in the process. If I agree to take an animal, um, we have, you know, three weeks, sometimes it's a month before the animal gets on the flight. So they send me pictures, videos, um, the foster parents or the shelter, wherever the animal is, um, keeps in touch with me and gives me all the tools and the information I need to find the animal the best home, you know, a good fit. Right. And, um, yeah, so it really, it, it works out well because with the amount of time that we have, and then sometimes, you know, they'll say, oh, we're a little bit short, you know, we need 150 more dollars for the flight. And, you know, we'll, I'm happy always to, you know, if we have the funds available, I'm happy to help out and pitch in, you know, um, so yeah, no, it's just, it really, sounds, it's it sounds very labor intensive and I didn't realize it was one dog at a time. Like this dog who looks like this, who has this history, who has these needs, 
that's extraordinary mm-hmm. because that's that's a lot of paw holding, if you will, on both ends of the of the <laughs> leash. A lot of people who have to vouch for this dog that this trip is not going to yeah. put them over the edge, and that adjusting to a completely yeah. different culture and life is something they can handle. Because I mean, you're key. You're you have it all in a perspective, don't you? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, some of them are in very rural areas and the hustle and bustle of New York City could be <laughs> yeah. a little scary for, for a person, right? So I find it that yeah, way. Now that I live in Vermont, I feel like the country mouse. Oh, there's so many people and so much noise and honking and fumes and lights and <laughs> action. And yeah, it's so, so what do you do in that case? You've got a rural dog and give me the name of a few com- countries where, where your dogs have been coming from. Oh, sure. So we do Mexico, India, Israel. Wow. Nepal, wow. Romania, Romania, China, Bali. Oh, my Indonesia. goodness. These are the distances that people are willing to send these dogs <laughs> to say, I love yeah. the Big Apple. Wowee. Yeah. So let's say you yeah. have a very rural dog from Nepal or Mexico or some of the other places you mentioned. How how do you evaluate mm-hmm. that that dog is going to be comfortable in the U.S.? Because our idea of rural, of course, bears no resemblance to their idea of rural or what their experience was. Yeah, um, so it is an adjustment for the, for the animals. Um, I have to say, we you know, in all of the animals that we have, the international ones that we've helped, um, we haven't had any issues with them adjusting to um new york some you know some of them are better off in in the in a country setting right not you know not in manhattan and you know in times square (laughs) um but a a lot of them have really just transitioned really nicely and um you know we do have our staff our trainers sometimes go out to a foster and no kidding out wow so when they come to america they're usually going to one of your foster families rather than to an end adopter that's right yes um most of the time it's to a foster but there have been times where we have adopters um i had a little girl come in from nepal and she went to my, well, I guess you could say it was a foster fail. Um, <laughs> she went to my, this wonderful family. They adopted two other dogs from me in the past. And the minute she laid eyes on, on her, she said, oh, this one, we have to keep this one. We're adopting her because she was, she was just really cute. And um, she actually had a bad leg. Her leg was injured pretty badly. Um, so when the dog arrived here, we did the amputation and, um, she's, she's doing great. I actually went to visit them, uh, two weeks ago. No kidding. So so you bring in a dog that's been injured and they didn't have the veterinary Mm -hmm. care to take care of it, but you knew before they sent it that the dog had needed medical care. So then it turns out it needs to be amputated and now you have a tripod dog and yet it's already got a loving home waiting for it. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, she uh, this this these sorry, this family is wonderful. They actually have six dogs, and um, <laughs> they moved they moved out of the city to a town called Fort Plain, New York, and um, the dogs have oh, it's a paradise. They wow. have two acres 
fenced in. Um, they're treated, you know, they're pampered. They're, it's, it's just great. I love them. Isn't that um, something? So does anyone say to you, Hey, Jennifer, what if you, why are you saving one dog at a time from Nepal or China or Bali? Just because somebody Mm -hmm. posted a darling or heart rending picture of them on Facebook, shouldn't you be doing more adoptions locally or or even, you know, in the tri-state area or even in impoverished states in America, which some of them, quite frankly, communities look like a third world country, as I understand it. And I'm yes. asking you this as devil's advocate. I, Those of us who love dogs understand, well, somebody pops this little dog on and someone spent a lot of time and energy already rescuing that dog mm-hmm. in their homeland And now they're raising money and now they're getting a crate. I mean, these are all huge obstacles. So there's an enormous Mm -hmm. drive behind it. These just aren't random dogs, right? These are dogs that already have a human advocate really cheerleading for them. But what, but do people say that to you? Why, why India? Why Bali? Why Mexico? When we've got so many homeless dogs here, is that something people ask you? Um, people do ask me that question and, you know, we rescue from all over from the United States, you know, Mississippi, Georgia, Texas. Um, I'm always happy to tell them, you know, well, if you want, you know, you can start your own rescue and you could do things exactly how you want them to be done. <laughs> you know, um, that's, that's the answer that I give people, you know, that's um, great. That's great. Yeah. It's your rescue. You've got enormous numbers of supporters. You have this huge, extensive family of foster families just waiting for any dog you want to put in their arms so they can put it in the end user's arms, if you will. Good for you. It just feels good to you. It's exciting. It's thrilling. I mean, I I was aware of (laughs) some friends who had helped a lot with the Dog Film Festival, which I know New York City Second Chance Rescue is going to be a part of in the fall. And she's a great gal. She designed the T-shirts that I wound up winding up with, you know, boxes of T-shirts. I'm not a I'm not a schmata salesman. I have no idea what to do with them, but they're adorable. (laughs) Maybe we'll give them to some of your fosters. Anyway, she um, through a rescue in New York based got a dog from Egypt. But I don't think anyone had really gotten to know this dog. And this dog was just one challenge after another, really complicated, mm-hmm. really difficult. Now, I don't know if this dog had been wandering around mm-hmm. scavenging around the pyramids. I don't think it had ever <laughs> lived in someone's apartment in Cairo. But uh, do you think that that mm-hmm. is a problem for some rescues that are bringing in dogs without all of this due diligence that you're doing? Yes, um, I think that you really need to make sure that you have the resources available if the animal should require them. Um, you know, it, it could be tough. It could, you know, it could be expensive. You might need to have trainers come in. You might need to do some rehabilitation. So, you know, you want to go into it with that mindset. Yes. And just, you know, really, yeah, make sure that you're prepared to, to tackle the challenges that might come along with it, you know. And do you think that the um, people who want to, to face those challenges are cut out of, let's say, the same kind of cloth as you, that they like the idea of the challenge? They like the idea of a long-distance rescue of an animal that otherwise would I mean, honestly, wind up mm-hmm. under the wheels of a cart, dead or or dead of an infection. Or I mean, street dogs in third world countries have short lives. Now, 
part of their lives could be happy because they're independent and free. But for the most part, they're hungry, thirsty, and have physical needs that nobody's meeting and the, and climate yeah. issues. But do you think that people that gravitate towards adopting the the kind of this the sad story of the you know three and a half legged dog mm-hmm. from somewhere or the blind dog from somewhere what do you think that draws people to that is it a need to do even more of a good deed than just take in a dog um i i think it's a number of different things um it could be the story of the animal you know um, yes it could could be the look of the dog um we've had some very um you know unique looking dogs yes from, from international mm-hmm. um yeah yeah that's you know, an interesting so, one so yeah if people got an egyptian dog for example the dogs in egypt the street dogs mm-hmm. have a very unique mm-hmm. look it is more like a maybe i i haven't studied it carefully but in my mind's eye more like a sight hound of some kind more larger yeah. ears and skinnier bodies and deeper chest and a longer tail. I mean, they're pretty cool looking. And mm-hmm. what? If, but mm-hmm. I've, but there's a lot of countries where the street dogs have that street dog look. You know, like a medium sized right. curled up tail, ears up, mm-hmm. kind of kind of a caramel colored dog. I mean, I'm sure you get your share yeah. of those too, right? Sure. Yeah. Everything. Um, we've gotten just. Uh, one that looks like a hyena um, yes. from Egypt, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about her mm-hmm. right now. Um, and then the family who adopted her, their their relatives um, adopted another dog from Egypt. And they hang out together and they play. <laughs> and they speak Egyptian to so. each other. Now, it's funny because you didn't mention <laughs> Egypt and I just had remembered this one it wasn't an adoption that went poorly. I mean, they were dealing with it, but, you know, there were a lot of challenges about the dog being alone in an apartment for any period of time oh, and the dog that. training and the leash and just being in an American public. But I think they lived on Long Island. But it's an incredible bunch of places these dogs have come from. And I guess exotic is something we're, we gravitate towards. So we're not really buying a dog that's exotic because there are people who want to do that, right? The the newest recognized sure. breed from Bulgaria or somewhere. But but we do like, many of us do like something unique, not just another black lab. And it fills that uh-huh. need to have something unique. It's makes, it makes, there's just something, I think, don't you think that the visual connection with a dog, what we see and how it makes us feel, you've mentioned it already mm-hmm. a few times, is a driver for people gravitating towards an animal? Oh, absolutely. Sure. You know, people are drawn, you know, to specific breeds or a specific look. Um, I always use the husky as an example in this case, because huskies are a very specific dog and they require um, a lot of exercise. And there's so many people that get them. And, you know, they just based on their their Their, look. Their blue eyes. Yeah. And that wolfy-ish look. You're right. And they give them a life that's not appropriate for those dogs. But you're careful about that at Second Chance. I mean, you're really very aware of who these dogs are. And you do a lot of interviewing or you know your fosters well, and they do some interviewing of the end adopters. So the the fit is what matters the most, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I always tell people, you know, with Breeze, you really, you have to do your research. You know, you need to know what what you're in for. 
um, I had a foster recently. He was an American bulldog, and he was a little firecracker. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He required a lot of exercise, a lot of structure in the house, um, boundaries. You yes, know? yes. Um, a lot of people make the mistake of, you know, wanting to spoil the dog and shower them with love and everything yes. they need. But dogs, you know, they, they need a strong leader in the home, a lot of these stronger breeds. And, um, you know, it's really about training the person um, more so than training the animal. Well said. Um, yeah. So. And that's going to mm-hmm. be true across the board. Well, Jennifer, what you're doing at New York City Second Chance Rescue is fabulous. I'm sure people already know about you on okay. Facebook and elsewhere. We've run out of time, but it's such a pleasure to okay. talk to you and be part of your story. Thank you for all the good you're doing for dogs around the globe, not just in America. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Tracy. It's always a pleasure. This show is supported by Earth Animal, privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creating holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. This show is also sponsored by the two women who privately own Evermore Pet Food, where they cook dog food from human edible ingredients shipped in frozen pouches directly to people's doors. I am so happy to have Dr. Ruth Ann Lobos back. She's the lead veterinarian for Merrick Pet Care. But she and I like to just gab about all kinds of dog and health-related issues. And one conversation we got into that I thought would be really good to share with you guys is the issue of supplements and supplementation. I go by the fact that I believe that they are highly valuable to people. And in a minute, I can say why I think that and see what Ruth Ann thinks. But I know that they're important for dogs. And the question is, why don't more people do it? And maybe having a a certified veterinarian talk about it, and you're also an elite athlete, as are your dogs Stella and Finn. They have done and do incredible amounts of athletic stuff. Dr. Ruthann, what about joint supplementation? So do you think, I take every single day, and my husband takes, and now his knees never crack or hurt when he goes up and down stairs, and he's a golfer and a biker and very active, a combination of glucosamine, MSM, and chondroitin, a company that I trust. It's a human supplement company called NOW, now family-owned, been around for a really long time, so I trust that what's in there is not some nasty, weird powder from China that isn't what it says and that it's actually going to work. What is your feeling about aging dogs and aging humans and whether these supplements are of value? And if so, which ones? <laughs> yes, that is a that is a loaded question right there, Tracy. It is, but I know you can I know you can meet the challenge. Yeah, it's loaded. That's, that's right. That's right. Well, I think so I, to take a step back on the just an overall picture of the supplement category and, and you hit on it um, when you talked about you know, what supplement you, you chose for your own self. And it's the same with our pets, where the supplement category, you know, is not regulated by the FDA or the USDA or really anyone. Um, so it's really important that when you're doing, you know, when you're, if you're considering taking a supplement, whether it's for yourself or your pets, that you do your due diligence and understand the company um, that they will guarantee or maybe have had a third party evaluate um, that what they say is on the label is actually in there and there's not anything 
extra that, you know, could be harmful for your pets. Um, And especially for our pets, you know, there are some things that benefit us as well as them. um, And there can be some overlap, but you really want to make sure again, that it's pet specific. There are things that we can handle that our dogs and cats cannot handle. And so really, you know, if you're having questions about which supplements, you know, your veterinarian is a great resource to use um, and really to understand if that supplement, um, one, is appropriate, if the brand is reputable within the pet food space or the, the pet industry space. Um, and, you know, if there's a certain dosage that is correct for, you know, for your specific cat or dog. And, you know, I'm, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm an athlete as well. And so, a, you know, an endurance distance runner and um, former triathletes and all the things. And so I take, ouch. you know, I take. <laughs> I just say ouch when I hear the word triathlete. Marathon right. runner, that's really painful too, but triathlete, ouch, do go on. Uh, uh, you know, so I, I take some supplements myself and, and have done um, the research to, to look at um, the manufacturer and make sure that the, the quality assurance is is there. And, you know, there are, we've got some good evidence in the pet space for, um, you know, certainly for fish oil, as it is an anti-inflammatory, it slows down the arthritic process and really helps to um, kind of dampen down what we call those inflammatory mediators or those substances that get produced, which sometimes is good. We want the body when there's some sort of injury or something at a specific place, the way that it, you know, it alerts the rest of the body that there's inflammation is it sends out all these kind of inflammatory yes. um, sort of like tweaks, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, um, yes. and so the body can come in and fix it. And if, because if they don't, read these tweets, they don't know that there's a problem. So it's important to have that, but we also need to have it in the right balance of breaking down and, you know, attacking things and also building things back up. And that's where we've got some really good evidence um, with fish oil that particularly, you know, those omega-3 fatty acids that come from fish um, are anti-inflammatory and slow that arthritic process down. And so I'm a big proponent of it for, um, you know, even before the arthritis sets in, um, you know, if you have a dog like, you know, Finn, my Labrador, who's seven, and he's been an athlete since he's been with us um, at starting at two years old. And so he's, he's been on, uh, you know, a salmon based diet and, and takes, um, you know, a, a fish oil supplement on top of that to make sure we get them in the right dosage. And, um, and I take it for myself too. Um, I've had my fair share of uh, injuries from, yes. from just from life and also from my athletic pursuits and, and really know that, that it helps. Um, in the space of chondroitin and glucosamine and MSM, we've, we've got some evidence as far as in the pet space where, um, in a what we call um, in vitro, so in in a in a test tube or right. on a petri dish, if you will, that it does help. They are natural building blocks. Glucosamine and chondroitin are natural building blocks of cartilage, and so we know if we put that, add that into um, a petri dish with some cartilage cells that are maybe not feeling so great, um, <laughs> that it does help them to feel better and to kind of boost uh, boost up. Um, where it starts to get a little bit sort of murky is what happens when we actually, you know, when we actually give it to our pets, does it get absorbed? And one of the key things is that it, we've found is that it needs to be a natural 
source of right. glucosamine and chondroitin. They don't absorb kind of that synthetic version nearly as well. And um, the evidence, you know, I'm not going to stand up here and say the evidence is um, cl- cut and clear that it is super beneficial. Um, we have kind of, I would say, equal evidence on both sides. But the way I really look at it as is it's not going to harm our pets if there's a chance that it could help our pets. Um, and help their cartilage. Um, I think it's important, and it it can work in your budget for your pets. Um, I think it's important to at least, like I like I like to say, well, let's at least give it a try. Um, and if you know, if it's something that we try and we don't see a difference, then you know, then that's okay. But um, you know, it's, especially if it's a reputable brand um, from a reputable company that guarantees that it's got the glucosamine in there and the chondroitin in there at the levels that they say, and nothing else toxic, then give it a whirl. Okay, um, let me you just. Know, I, you, you brought up so many great points, and I'm afraid I'm going to forget <laughs> some of them. The first one is it's true. The animal ones somehow New Zealand muscles. Each of these companies that makes a a dog-specific joint supplement. They all claim that they've, and they each probably do, have a relationship with a New Zealand farmer who has a muscle farm that are like the perfect amounts of, you know, uh, chondroitin and glucosamine in those muscles. And they've kind of monopolized that particular area of shellfish because that really, and, and the ones that we take, that I take, are not based on New Zealand muscles, but seems to be in the pet space really important. Now, you were saying that that um, supplements in general aren't regulated. And certainly human ones is frightening because there are whole stores that have shelves of stuff that nobody really can know for sure when they're trying to build up their muscles in the, in the gym or lose weight. Those things are scary because we don't know what's in there. But there is in the pet world, what do you think about NASC, the National Animal Supplement Council? The, the companies that put that seal on their products hold them, they are held to a very high standard, is my understanding, to be members of it and to have their products have that seal. I almost feel like pet supplements are more carefully looked at, call it regulated, but I mean, it's self-regulation than the human ones. Does it seem like that to you? Um, in a lot of ways, yes. <laughs> I, would, I would say, you know, I mean, I think, you know, having, like I mentioned earlier, having that third party certification from, again, not just, oh, my neighbor down the street is my third party. (laughs) Yeah, well said. But, you know, right. Um, But, you know, an actual organization that has stringent protocols and things like that um, certainly adds, you know, that level because it doesn't come, I should say that level of peace of mind because it, you know, it doesn't come as, you know, just you write a letter and they're like, yeah, okay. Um, You know, there is, you know, there's a, a, a strict protocol. It's a financial investment. It's a time investment. Yep. Um, and, you know, the industry is growing so fast, um, in the pet industry. And so I think it's, you know, for those who may not be of the highest standards of uh, and are looking for to just make a quick buck and knowing how attached people get to their pets, it, it, it's an industry where consumers could get easily preyed upon. Yes. And so for those companies that go and have that, you know, invest that time and can guarantee, you know, that what is in there is in there and can show you kind of the results of their tests or their protocols and things like that. Um, it, you just, again, adds to that layer of integrity um, of the of the company behind the product you might be supplementing for your pet. That's really, that's really well said. And 
when you said about asking your vet, I used to be cynical about it because there was only one, because the distributor sold the products of one company that hadn't changed what was in their product, a lot of which was chemically based, not naturally based for a long time. But vets have become more integrative. They've welcomed more holistic type of products. And my vet has the whole line from Vetra Science, which I only mention because it's a Vermont-based company, so I feel very proud about that. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is that they've been in business for decades. Many of these companies are driven by one passionate person or family, and they've been doing this thing of making supplements as the only thing they do for a really long time. And in terms of whether you can afford it, my pet insurance Healthy Paws covers it. So for for the million reasons I tell you all, please get pet insurance. Please get pet insurance. Once you've paid your deductible or it goes towards your deductible, they pay 90% of every bag of those joint supplements that I get. Now, I'm not giving them without seeing a result. But the other comment you made, which is really important for people to know, all supplementation, whether it's for you or pets, is not like taking an Advil. Oh, I feel better 20 minutes later or I have a stomachache 20 minutes later, depending on how Advil affects you. It takes, uh, they say, about a week to even two weeks for the tissues to load up, all the tissues, all the cells, especially in the joints, to load up these supplements. And so you might not see the dog moving more comfortably in two or three days. Sometimes I've seen that with dogs. But maybe if you don't see anything in a week to 10 days, that dog's body, as you said, we're all individuals, is not uptaking what's in those supplements in the areas that it needs it. And then it's a waste of money. So give it to the other dog or save it for the other dog to get old kind of thing. <laughs> Fish oil is the same thing. And I, I remember years ago when I had um, a vet on who was studying it for Cornell Vet School, that the thing about fish oil is not just that it's anti-inflammatory for the joints, but for your brain, for your heart, for your everything, but that you have to have an abundant amount of it at least twice a day for, for all the cells to be sort of bathed in it is the kind of analogy that he'd made. Is that something that you find for yourself? Because I take it twice a day and the dogs get it in both their meals. They get squirts yeah. out of the pump bottle. What do you think about that? The, the constant topping up, if you will, of the omega-3s in your body? Yeah, so I mean, I think it is important to have that that regular schedule um, of of delivery. And again, you know, the omega threes, while they primarily serve as a as a fat source, so an energy source, whether oh, that be, um, you know, for our for for just the regular cells and bodily function, or uh, you know, exchanging their little place in the joint membrane and and acting as um, anti-inflammatory. They you know they are an energy source, and it's also um, what we call a saturable saturable process. Oh, I like that uh, word. Yeah. So, you know, so oftentimes, um, you know, people think there's, you know, more is better, more is better. I just got to keep at loading this on. Um, and really for its anti-inflammatory properties in the joint, it will get to a certain point where more is not better. It has reached the number of little omega-3s right. that can be in that joint membrane. And that's all that can fit in there. And so then it's, it's not going to, you're not going to get any more anti-inflammation from taking more. So that's why it's really important, again, to look at the concentration yes, of the, the omegas dosing, that are yes. on there and understand the right dosing for, for your size, um, yourself or your size pet. Uh, but certainly, you know, that regular, regular 
quote unquote administration, whether that's pills, pumps, whatever, um, is going to be important to keep those levels where they need to be, especially in our older pets with, um, you know, their their arthritic areas are certainly going to increase just like they do in us as we get older and are fortunate to have the aging process. Um, and so really making sure that that's, there's that consistent dosage is going to be key to keeping them comfortable. And I wish that everybody would be to the point where like, oh, I'm really overdoing it with the fish oil because I can't really get them to do it at all. I have friends <laughs> who listen to the show and they're like, so... Here's what I'm doing. Is that good? I'm like, yes, fish oil twice a day. The number of pumps for this for the weight of the dog, as you pointed out. We only have a couple of minutes left, but I do want to give a shout out to Merrick because the foods not only have glucosamine and chondroitin and I think omega-3s in them, but yeah. they've been mm -hmm. tested before and after manufacture by experts to make sure that it's really still in the food because I've always been suspicious. Well, if you make kibble and it's extruded and it's, you know, under high heat and processed, how do you know that the stuff you put in, the costly stuff you put in is still there and available, bioavailable to the dog's body on the other side? But they are tested, right? Yeah. And I think that's, you know, you hit on a key topic of, you know, it's really important to have you know, a team of experts behind the food that, that you're feeding your pets. And so looking at, yes, not only looking at the ingredients that you put in and what those, the nutrients that those ingredients provide on the front side, but then as it goes through that extrusion process and the heat and the pressure and the baking yes, yes. and all of that and the drying and getting into the bag and then being, you know, in a bag on the shelf for however long That's right. that um, if the, the product has been looked at, um, by those same folks to know if it is, if all of the goodness that you put in on the front side is still there on the back side. And, you know, so it's not only the, you know, the PhD nutritionists who formulate the diets, but then you have to have, you know, the, um, the engineer to understand the extrusion process and what happens to those nutrients as they get and the food scientists that know what happens to those nutrients as they go through the extrusion process. And then again, the facilities to be able to look at the finished product and test that as well for its nutrient um, content and making sure that it's at the levels that they say are on the package. And that's certainly one of the things that, uh, that eases my mind when I pour the yes. kibble into, into the bowl for my three at home is that uh, at Merrick Pet Care, we've got all of the thing, all of the folks who are looking at not only the recipes as, as they're being uh, created and inspired, but then also the finished product um, to make sure it's, it's safe and at the levels that we say are uh, are that we say they are on the bag. Well, you've said it perfectly. We've run out of time. I'm still going to supplement with my joint supplements and fish oil on top of that because I just believe in it. And if it's a little too much, it's not going to hurt. It'll just, you know, they used to say about vitamins when I lived in California 23 years and we all took all kinds of vitamin supplements. Oh, you're just going to pee it out. You know what? That's okay because whatever my body needed, it took. And I hope that that is going to be the same for people's pets. Dr. Ruth Ann Lobos, thank you for being here. Really appreciate your time and wisdom. Thanks for having me, Tracy. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the guests as much as I did. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now.